The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 69, to the chief musician set to the lilies, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing. I still must restore it. O oh God, you know my foolishness, and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. How many of us feel that way, that our actions would be the cause of somebody else stumbling? Because, verse 7, for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies and do not hide your face from your servant. For I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and you talked uh, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall, be, shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas, and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. What Wonderful. It's kind of almost ironic, though, what that is picturing is actually right in what we're looking at today and for the next uh, couple sermons until we finish Jonah chapter 4. The words are reflective of Christ on the cross, which we've already seen in the chapter 2, and everything that he is speaking about is actually fulfilled right in the book of Jonah. Wonderful stuff. As I said, today is Jonah 3. It's verses 1 through 4, and this is entitled, The Sign of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's a question for you. Why did Jonah decide it was better to go to Nineveh? He learned that he could not trust the ocean. There was just something fishy about it. (laughs) I'm sure you've all heard the term, God is a God of second chances. I know I have. Paul said it at uh, lunch a couple days ago when we were at the Thai restaurant speaking about his father. God is a God of second chances. Although it does sound a bit cliche, it really is the truth. I know I've been given second, third, and even fourth chances in my life. And I'll bet that in eternity, I'll see where the Lord intervened in my ongoing trek in a million ways I never realized. Surely we're all going to see this. Things surround us that we don't even know are there and which would otherwise be where we meet our end. This kind of thing is seen in the movies all the time. In the movie Next, I don't know if you've seen it, it's Nicolas Cage. He plays the part of a Las Vegas magician and he has a secret which others are unaware of. He can see a few minutes into the future. And by seeing what is coming, he can make adjustments in the surrounding events so that what would happen would then be prevented and a new course in time would occur. Although well into the realm of science fiction, it is not at all improbable that events in our lives are also affected by those who know what an outcome would otherwise be. Then they work to ensure that the plan that God has laid out is what will ultimately happen. Does that sound improbable? Well, it may sound fantastic, but it is in accord with the word of God. In Hebrews 13, verse 2, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. What is this verse speaking of? Well, as a sort of pun, I gave an idea to a Christian artist who used used to do a daily comic on things that are in the Bible. My suggestion was to draw a guy named Harold, who is so clumsy that the angels would follow him around. They would laugh at him, always tripping up or flubbing up, and thus they would be entertained by him. Poor Harold. However, that is not what's being spoken of here. Instead, it is speaking of us, our conduct, and how it is being monitored by angels. It may be as tests of our faith and character, not in the sense that God needed to know about that, Rather, it is in the sense of building up our faith and in strengthening our spiritual lives. It may also be in the sense of redirecting our very actions in order to effect a change in what otherwise would have occurred. If we unwittingly entertain angels, it means that they have entered our presence for a reason, 
which we were otherwise unaware of. And this entry has now redirected the fabric of our lives and what would have been. We're not alone. And God is actively working to save many people alive. He works through nature. He works through angels. And he's worked personally in other ways for each of us, whether we acknowledge it or not. In my case, at least as far as salvation is concerned, he sent, believe it or not, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses to me in the store that I own down the road. Regardless of the source, they were certainly not angels. He was able to use these people who are not even in his own fold to bring me to the point where I determined to read the Bible and find out whether its claims were true or not. They are. And I was graciously granted not only salvation, but also relief from the clutches of those who would keep me from it, meaning the very people who came to tell me of their twisted version of his word. Surely angels were there in that store, directing me unwittingly toward the Lord and away from the deception of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I was given a second chance at life that day. In the case of Jonah, he was given a second chance too. In his opening commentary to Jonah chapter 3, Matthew Henry says the following, See here the nature of repentance. It is the change of our mind and way and a return to our work and duty. Also the benefit of affliction. It brings those back to their place who had deserted it. See the power of divine grace, for affliction of itself would rather drive men from God than draw them to him. God's servants must go where he sends them, come when he calls them, and do what he bids them. We must do whatever the word of the Lord commands. We'll get a bit of repetition from the previous sermon that I explained to you a little while ago today concerning what is, in fact, the sign of Jonah. I'm going to explain it for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to explain the reason for repeating it at, at, at that time as well. But if for no other reason, repetition helps solidify things in our memory bank. Also, repetition helps solidify things in our memory bank. <laughs> I hope you will remember that. Our text verse for today comes from Hosea chapter 14. It says there, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. Assyrius shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Whether a fatherless child, a disobedient nation of a covenant people, or a great city filled with pagans who have their lives filled with wickedness and idolatry, the Lord can and will be merciful to those who turn away from their wickedness. This is the lesson to be found in the 10 verses of chapter 3 of Jonah, and it is a lesson which permeates all of Scripture. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, according to the word of the Lord, it's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, and came word Yehovah unto Jonah, second saying. The words are practically identical to Jonah 1, verse 1. Only the words son of Amittai are replaced with the word second. We know now which Jonah is being referred to, and so the relationship to his father is unnecessary. 
and we have been with him on his wayward journey. And so the word second reminds us that he could have avoided all of the misery of the previous chapters if he had simply been obedient at the first. There would be no stink of fish guts on him. There would be no need for fresh clothes. And the guilt of the memory of having been first disobedient to the Lord and to his calling would not haunt his memory in the years to come. But these things were necessary in order to give us the pictures of Christ, which we have seen so far. They were also necessary to bring about salvation to those pagan, salty sailors who had now found the one true God and had received his grace. It should not be without note that a later apostle also had been out of the Lord's favor and was eventually restored. Peter, or as his name is, Simon, son of Jonah, had followed a wayward path, but he too was reinstated into a right relationship with Christ. In both cases, the name Jonah has been introduced to show this and to teach us a lesson concerning God's sovereignty and his mercy. Whether Jonah himself or Simon bar Jonah, meaning the apostle Peter, the vacillating of the dove's flight was seen in both. And yet, they both met the end, which was determined by the Lord. What marvelous pictures of Gentile redemption are seen in Jonah of the Old Testament, and what marvelous truths of Israel's final redemption are seen in Simon bar Jonah's of the New Testament. Between the writings which surround these two men, both Jew and Gentile, are shown a great and enduring hope which is realized in the Messiah of the Jews, who is also the Christ of the Gentiles." In him, there is hope enough for all. Concerning this verse now, some scholars go into great detail, speculating that Jonah went down to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord and to pay his vows in order to be restored before going to Nineveh. Such commentary is completely unnecessary and it is without any merit. The record is left simple and direct. The narrative goes directly from the end of chapter 2 with the vomiting of him onto the dry land right into the second call of the Lord for him to get about his business in Nineveh. Jonah had been given a commission. He was disobedient to it. He suffered because of it, and he has now been given the commission again. The insertion of such comments only detracts from the simple and beautiful narrative which we have been presented. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh. Cum lek el Nineveh. Arise, go unto Nineveh. It is the exact same words as Jonah 1-2. As we saw, Nineveh was founded by Nimrod and was located on the east bank of the Tigris River. In and shortly after the time of Jonah, it was at its zenith in power and glory. The name Nineveh to a Hebrew would mean something like offspring's habitation. It is to this city, filled with Gentiles, that Jonah is directed once again to go. If you remember on his first call, he opted instead to go to Tarshish, which means something like white dove or dove white. The characteristics of Nineveh or offspring's habitation seemed unsuitable to his tastes, whereas Tarshish had at least a semblance of familiarity to him. Now, why would this be? Aren't they both just Gentile nations who are equally unworthy of his presence as a Jew? Well, not exactly. Tarshish was a descendant of Japheth, the second son of Noah, and the one who would be given a like blessing to Shem with these words from Genesis 9:27. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. On the other hand, Nineveh was a city built by Nimrod, a descendant of Ham, Noah's youngest son. He received no such blessing. 
He had done something perverted to his father, and so his father withheld any blessing upon him at all and instead cursed his youngest son, Canaan. Jonah saw it better to flee to one who would dwell in the tents of Shem than to preach the Lord's repentance to a line of such disgraceful people as those in Nineveh. Surely the Lord had forgotten such a simple thing. Jonah had been confident that it was better to go to Tarshish than to Nineveh. Tarshish, being a son of Japheth, was far more tolerable to him than to a descendant of Ham. Like the Jews' decisions about meals every day, anything but Ham. However, <laughs> however, he is now once again directed to be on his way, even if it means dining with Ham. Perish the thought. Verse 2 continues, That great city, Ha'ir Hagedolah, the city, the whopping. Again, these are the exact same words as Jonah 1 verse 2. It may appear superfluous that such a descriptor would be used a second time, but it is not. One might think that the Lord would simply say, arise, go to Nineveh, and leave it at that. However, the repetition is given to highlight several things. First, it is intended to accentuate the superlative greatness of the city. In so doing, and in the message that is being sent to it, the surpassing greatness of the Lord is then actually highlighted. If this city is so great and the Lord is calling it to repentance or destruction, then the greatness of the Lord is actually what is on display. Secondly, it is a reminder to Jonah of the importance of his message. <coughs> Within a city are people. If the city is to be destroyed, the people will likewise be destroyed. The care of the Lord for these Gentiles is then being highlighted by the greatness of the city itself. Thirdly, Highlighting the city's greatness is intended to bolster Jonah's resolve in what lies ahead. The magnitude of the commission he has been given could be a source of fear within him. But because the Lord has highlighted it in advance, Jonah is given the assurance that the way has already been paved for him. It is the Lord and his word which will break open that which is to be broken open. And fourthly, if such a great city is to be called to repentance and it does not respond and is destroyed, why would the lesser cities of Israel be spared for their similar waywardness? And if such a great city is called to repentance and if it then responds and is not destroyed, then how much greater should the judgment upon the cities of Israel be when they likewise fail to respond? Remember these questions because they bear directly on chapter 4. Israel's been given the law, and with that law came greater, not lesser, responsibility towards the Lord. The law which they possessed was not a buffer from destruction, but it rather highlighted that destruction was due if they ignored it. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, And the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone... To whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. Repeating the term, that great city is not superfluous at all. Instead, it is key to understanding much of what is going on elsewhere in Scripture. And in connection with that key is the fact that all of this story actually centers on Israel. Even though they are never mentioned even one time in the entire book of Jonah, Israel is the focus. How marvelously evident that will be when we come to the final chapter, the final paragraph, and yes, even the final sentence of the book of Jonah. Israel was, 
is and will be the overall focus of God's attention in redemptive history. And yet due to their actions, all highlighted by disobedient Jonah, the Gentiles are graciously given the chance at repentance and entry into the commonwealth of Israel. Marvelous. Marvelous indeed. Verse 2 continues, And preach to it the message that I tell you. Vikra eleha et hakeria asher anochi dober eleha. And cry to the crying that I am about to speak unto you. There is a change in the words here from Jonah 1 verse 2. There it said, Ukera aleha. Now it says, Vikra eleha. The first cry, aleha, is against Nineveh. This is now a cry, eleha, or unto Nineveh. Why has the Lord done this? The reason for the change is not stated. And commentators, if they comment at all, give no valid reason. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates them both the same. Either way, the words of the Greek Old Testament use close parallel words to those of the Hebrew, which are then given their full weight and understanding in the New Testament. The word keriah, or cry of proclamation, is used only this once in the entire Bible. However, its root, kara, meaning to call or proclaim, is a commonly used word. Jonah was told to be a herald with a specific message, one of repentance. I would suggest that the new and unique terminology is based on what has already occurred. He is to cry unto rather than crying against Nineveh, and he is given this special type of crying unto them because of the sudden and complete change in the sailors of chapter 1. Unlike the covenant people of Israel, they were given a continuous crying from countless prophets, and they continuously rejected the word. The Gentiles had been given a short and succinct message and they had accepted it. If they were so quick to respond, the pattern might surely be expected for other Gentiles as well, could it not? And so, instead of crying out against Nineveh, Jonah is now instructed to cry out unto Nineveh, and the cry will be one of expectation in a positive change in the people. John the Baptist was such a crier, as was Jesus himself. And Jesus, while instructing the people, brought up the very cry that he had given to Jonah to proclaim many generations before. In Luke 11, we read his words. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It speaks of a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the son of man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jonah's keriah, here in the Hebrew, or kerygma, as it's called in the Greek, was a cry of proclamation for repentance. The response to his cry is set in stark contrast to that of Jesus' greater cry to the people of Israel. In both instances, it is the word of the Lord which is proclaimed. In the case of Jonah, he is to call out the words which the Lord would put into his mouth. In the case of Jesus, they are of the same source. The words he spoke are the words of the Lord because he is one and the same Lord who first sent Jonah to speak by putting his words into the prophet's mouth. Again, we are seeing this remarkable contrast between Israel and the Gentiles being highlighted in these subtle nuances, which one would never, never see unless they really took the time to evaluate each and every word and each and every detail. 
Verse 3, so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. Vayakam Yonah vayalek el Nineveh. So arose Jonah and went unto Nineveh. The words are in direct contrast to Jonah 1 verse 3. So Jonah arose to flee, it says, is now so Jonah went. The Lord told him to arise and he arose. He was instructed to go to Nineveh and he had fled to Tarshish. Now he's instructed to go to Nineveh and to Nineveh he goes. The smell of the inside of the great fish was probably clinging to him still and he wanted no more of that. (laughs) What the Lord wills is what will be. Jonah had learned a lesson that many of us still stubbornly refuse to learn. We can buck against the word of the Lord, but it is we who will ultimately pay the price for doing so. In the end, his will is what will be realized. Jonah's willingness to disobey is turned into a willingness to obey. Verse 3 continues, according to the word of the Lord, Kidbar Yehovah, according to word Yehovah. This is the last of 33 times this phrase is used in the Bible. It is usually associated with obedience, but it occasionally is used in conjunction with the fulfillment of a prophecy based on the consequences of disobedience. Sometimes it's used in conjunction with the necessity to obey difficult issues, such as destroying life. Again, the words are directly contrasted to Jonah 1 verse 3. There it said, from the face of the Lord. Now it says, according to the word of the Lord. The words of these opening verses in each chapter are precisely stated to show us the contrast between futile disobedience and resolute obedience. Jehovah has spoken, and Jonah understands that his word is to be accepted and acted upon. Though Jonah is a prophet of God, receiving the word of the Lord directly, he's no different than Israel, who was directly given the word of the Lord. Like Jonah, they bucked against the word, and they were exiled in order to bring them into conformity with that word. Here Jonah is Israel, being called from disobedience to obedience. And so, astonishingly, his rebellion in the time of the fish is not only a picture of Jesus and his cross, as we saw during those last two sermons. I mean, every single word pointed to Jesus' cross, didn't it? But it is also a picture of Israel while under punishment for rejecting the word of the Lord. They were cast out among the sea of chaos, meaning the stirred up Gentile nations, and they were counted as dead to the world. And yet they were sovereignly protected as a people during that time, keeping them alive despite their disobedience, just as Jonah was protected in the fish's belly. They were kept safe for two days or 2,000 years, and they were restored to the dry land, meaning Israel, at the dawning of the third day or at the beginning of the third millennium. This is seen pictured in the words of Hosea, where a day is reckoned for a thousand years. Here's what it says. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. Heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And yet now Jonah is also a type of Christ who had to do the calling of the Gentiles himself because Israel refused to do it as was their duty. Only the true Israel, Christ, performed according to the word of the Lord without wavering. As far as obedience to the word, can we expect any less from the Lord today? We have the entire body of scripture speaking out to us, asking us to be obedient to it. It is the same word having come from the same source. Such directed actions as exile or being swallowed by a fish may not happen to us, but consequences for failure to heed are no less sure to come in their due time, as Paul wisely noted about rewards in our afterlife. 
Everything we do now has some consequence in some way. Verse 3 continues, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. And Nineveh existed as a city whopping to God. Most translations follow the Hebrew, indicating this in the past tense. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. This is not incorrect, but it leads to the impression that the account may have been written after the time of Jonah, when it had already declined in power or even after it was destroyed. However, the past tense in Hebrew is not expected to be taken in that way. The word used simply means to become or to come to pass. It was a great city, not because it once was, but because it had come to pass that it was so. The past tense expresses the reality of the city's nature from the time that it became great. The meaning of the term the Bible uses to describe the city, gedola le Elohim, or whopping to God, is debated but it's not really difficult to determine. Greatness before God, as the Bible states it, can be divided into two separate categories. Terms like the mountains of God or the cedars of God give the idea of the greatness of what God has created. Such mountains or trees are examples of the handiwork of God, which demonstrate his immense ability to create. And then there is that which is under the eye and the attention of God. Even today, we hear terms like, he's a great man of God. We understand that such a person bears the scrutiny of God, just as a great city does in the eyes of men, but it was a great city also in the eyes of God. In Revelation, Jerusalem is called a great city, both the earthly and the heavenly Jerusalem. Likewise, Babylon is termed a great city numerous times. Both are great before God because they bear his scrutiny. Nineveh is not merely a great city before men, but it is also such before God. Its size and its status brought it to his eyes. Verse 3 continues. A three-day journey in extent. Mahalach shaloshet yamim. Journey three days. The word mahalach or journey is used but four times in the whole Bible. Two of them are in Jonah 3.3 3 and 3.4. It indicates a passage or a distance. In the case of Nineveh, Matthew Poole states that it was the greatest city of the known world at that day. It was then in its flourishing state greater than Babylon, whose compass was 365 or 385 furlongs. But Nineveh was a compass of 480. Her walls, a hundred feet in height and broad enough for three coaches to meet and safely pass by each other. This is only the walls. It had 1,500 towers on its walls, and these towers 200 feet high, and 1,400,000 men employed continually for eight years to build it. If it was 480 furlongs, or about 60 miles in circumference, and a day was about a 20-mile walk, then the Bible is saying that it would take three days to walk all the way around it. The city is known for its size in this manner, not in regards to what will be said in the next verse. Yet forty days, and you shall see your last. I have stated that your wickedness is at an end. On you my fiery coals I will cast. Upon you my fury and wrath I will send. Your wickedness has come up before me. It stands and confesses against what you have done. You will be destroyed for this, so shall it be. You have exalted yourself, but you are the lowly one. Be prepared, for it comes soon enough. Unless you repent, yes, I will grant you reprieve. But your heart is hard, your stubborn will is tough. Turn now and repent. Turn now and believe. I long to have compassion on you. If you repent, so shall I do. 
Our second thought today is a word to Nineveh, a sign to Israel. It's verse 4. Verse 4 says, And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And entered Jonah into the city, journey day one. If the city's walls were a three-day walk, one could walk its diameter in a single day. But it would make no sense to enter the city and walk right to the other side. Instead, his walk within the city would be according to the size of the city, walking around it and proclaiming his message. The words then basically mean Jonah entered the city, walking through it for a day. Wherever he was, that is where his proclamation was made. The word journey mentioned in verse 3 is simply given to explain the great size of the city. The journey of verse 4 is not expected to be tied into the size of the city, but into the time of Jonah's proclamation. Verse 4 finishes with these words, Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Just five words. Words of terror, but also words of grace. There is no reason to think that Jonah said anything more than these five words. He simply called it out as a statement of fact. And what could have had more of an effect than this? A Hebrew had come all the way from a foreign land to walk around the city and make a single proclamation to the people. If he wanted to die, it would have been a lot easier to just jump off a mountain. If he wanted security, he could have simply stayed in Israel. If he was a Jew, then he wasn't an Assyrian. And therefore, he had no reason to proclaim a lie to this people. If he had stopped to debate, they would have had reason to harden their hearts. If he had said more, the message would have become confused. The chosen person is the perfect person to carry the message, and the chosen words are exactly what was needed to affect the change in the hearts of the people. The call itself was all that was needed to prompt them to consider the truth of the message. It is a lesson for us. Keep the gospel simple. The word he uses is the same as that which was recorded for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is a story that permeated Hebrew culture as the epitome of what it represented. If any in Assyria knew that culture, they would also then know the meaning of the word. As far as the allotted time frame, 40 days is given as a time of probation. If the message took hold, then there would be a turning to God and hopefully no destruction. If the message failed to stir the people, only destruction could result. This then is the sign of Jonah. I explained this in an earlier sermon. The sign is not the time in the belly of the fish. There is nothing in Scripture to even hint that they knew of what had happened to Jonah. And what Scripture says is all that matters in this. Rather, as Jesus clearly states in the Gospel of Luke, the preaching of Jonah is the sign, just as Jesus preaching to the people was the sign. Jonah preached and promised destruction in 40 days. Jesus preached and promised destruction as well. If it was realized, it would be a year for day based on Jonah's words, of which Jesus alluded to. This also happened to be the time that the spies were gone who returned with a bad report, if you remember that, 40 days. They rejected the word of the Lord, and they were sentenced a day for a year of punishment. As I said in the earlier sermon, it appears that Matthew is saying that the sign of Jonah is that of him being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And all along, almost all scholars have passed this along as being the case. This is because after saying this, he said that he would likewise be in the belly of the earth. In other words, with a cursory look at the narrative, the sign seems to be his death and resurrection. But Luke leaves out both the time frame and the entire account of the fish. 
And when he does this, he clears up the context that the sign of Jonah is his preaching and what that preaching stated, that destruction was decreed in 40 days. Looking at these verses in their proper light clearly shows that the preaching to the Ninevites was the sign. We saw that in Luke 11, which I cited a little bit earlier. The sign of Jonah is the preaching, which, if rejected, would lead to destruction after 40 days. The resurrection, excuse me, simply bears witness to the truth of Jesus' preaching, which was to an already unbelieving people. Jesus' words of the kingdom and of repentance to this generation, then, are the ultimate sign to them. Other prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, but Jesus spoke in his own name and under his own authority as the Son, and so indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The warning to repent or be overthrown turned out to be a day for a year, just as it was in the Old Testament. When Israel disobeyed in the wilderness, as I said, they were given a day for a year of punishment for every day that the spies were gone. It was 40 days and thus 40 years of punishment. In Ezekiel chapter 4, he was told to lay on his right side for 40 days, signifying a day for a year of punishment for Judah. He was told to do the same on his left side for 390 days. It was a day for a year for the house of Israel. Together, they formed the basis for the return of Israel in 1948. In 40 years after Jesus' words, a day for a year, Israel was destroyed and they were carried away exile. The Romans came in and did what Nineveh will be spared of having done to them. God's judgment would fall heavy upon them for failing to repent, receive their long-awaited Messiah, and conform to the will of God, which is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. For this reason, Jesus said this to the people in Matthew 23, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The word of God spoken to Israel in fulfillment of scripture and under the full authority of the Messiah who had been promised since the very beginning of man's time on the planet was the sign. The resurrection simply proved it. Now, with having heard this explanation for a second time, hopefully it is sunk into your mind in several ways. First, we are to know what the sign of Jonah is in a predictive sense, in a literal sense, and in a fulfilled sense. Secondly, if the sign of Jonah, which Christ Jesus spoke of, occurred more than 400 years before his coming, and it was then fulfilled 40 years after his warning, exactly as he had stated, and as recorded history, both biblical and extra-biblical, has borne this out, then shouldn't we be confident in all of the other words that the Lord has spoken? Shouldn't we be willing to accept the full counsel of Scripture as literal and true? The Lord promised destruction to Israel. Yes, it is true, but he also promised return and restoration for them as well. Is it too hard to accept that just as undeserving Nineveh was given a warning leading to repentance, that Israel could likewise be restored to God's favor? Should we so adamantly speak against the rebellious Jewish people simply because they are rebellious? Or should we look to God's long-suffering nature as an amazing testimony that he is willing to go to even the greatest lengths of all to restore those he has called and placed his name upon? While we stand pointing our fingers at Israel and railing against them, can't we look back on our own time before Christ and realize that we too were his enemies, cut off and condemned? We too were without hope 
and we weren't even of his promised people. How much more then should we be willing to praise God for his mercy upon both, upon Israel and upon the Gentiles, both equally undeserving before his eyes? For the undeserving, there are just two avenues that can be taken. The first is to accept God's provision as he determines, or to face God's wrath as he is proclaimed. In the end, it is the wrath that all deserve. Nobody deserves mercy, and grace is out of reach except as offered by the one who bestows it. How unfair God is that he would dare to judge the world. But no, how undeserved is not being a part of that judgment. And that time of judgment is at hand. First, it is at hand for every person who is but one heartbeat away from their end. Not one of us knows our pre-appointed hour, but it is on the way. Secondly, it is at hand for the world as a whole. I'm sorry to tell those who mock at God's right to judge, but the book is written. The word stands firm, and the great day of his wrath is at hand. The prophecies of restoration to Israel have begun. Their arrival in the long, desolate land is the key to both the destruction and the restoration, and by God, they are back in the land setting the stage for each to come about. And so be warned, whether through death of natural cause or through an explosion of God's wrath on humanity not seen since the flood of Noah, we are all going to meet our Maker. Before our day arrives, we have been offered grace, unmerited favor, just as Nineveh has been offered. Destruction is prophesied, but peace and restoration is available. And it is found in the righteous judge of all mankind, Jesus Christ. Let us not be found with a verdict of guilty on that day, but rather let us accept the grace and be pardoned of every misdeed through the blood that he shed, which can alone purify and restore the guilty soul. If you've never taken the time to simply call out to Jesus and ask him to forgive you of your sins, I'm telling you the time is coming really quickly that your life is going to end and it'll be too late. You need to do it. You don't get any chances. There are no second chances when it comes to the end of your life. When your last breath has gone out of your lungs and when your heart stops ticking, you get no more chances to say, I was wrong. I want Jesus. You're given this life and this life alone to do that. And so God has given us an offer of peace through the blood shed by his own son who entered into the stream of humanity to give his life up in exchange for your sins. And so I would ask that you would reach out and receive it. It's a very simple thing to do. Let me read it to you right from the Bible so I don't blow it here. I'm going to read you exactly what it says from Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. How quickly we mess this up and we add on to this simple message. Two times in the past 48 hours, I've gotten requests about eternal salvation and about the doctrine of uh, being saved. It says right here, it says, well, I'm going to start with verse 8. This is Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say may. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So people have asked me twice in the past 48 hours, well, what if somebody doesn't believe in the Trinity? I don't care if they believe in the Trinity or not for getting saved. Is the Trinity in that verse there? No. It says, if you believe this simple message, you will be saved. Now, you teach somebody that the Trinity is a false doctrine and then tell them this, they're not going to be saved because they now have a false impression of God. God wants it as simple as possible. 
for us to be saved and then to learn doctrine. We don't talk about the Trinity when we give a message of salvation. We don't talk about the virgin birth. We don't talk about the return of Christ. All we do is say, you know, God sent a son to, into the world to die for your sins. Really? He did that for me? He shed his blood for me? I believe it. And guess what? You are saved. That's what this book says. All of the doctrine in the world will keep the next guy from being saved. But God is making it so easy by saying, just believe this simple truth. I love you enough to send my son to shed his blood for you. Don't get things confused. Once you have doctrine, then teach doctrine. Grow in your relationship with Christ. Mature, and your rewards will be many, Paul, right? The more that you pursue Christ, and I guarantee you, I've said this before, all of the things that you can do for God once you are a Christian, of all of them, what do you think he is going to reward the most? It is faith. Rewards come from actions of faith. And where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He wants us to be in this word, to study it, to know it, and to show ourselves approved. And he will reward you the more that you talk to him. Because talking to him demonstrates faith. The more that you praise him. Because praising, you don't praise something that doesn't exist. But when you praise God because of Jesus Christ, you are demonstrating faith. When you fellowship with other believers in a Christian environment, you are demonstrating faith that it is important to you that he deems it as such, and therefore you will get a reward for that. Everything comes back to faith, and if it's not a faith, it is, three-letter word begins with S, ends with I-N, sin. That's right. Don't sin. Have faith and be restored to God and pursue him all the days of your life, okay? Our closing verse today comes from 2 Peter 3, it's verses 8 and 9, and this will confirm something I said about Hosea chapter 6. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. They've been exiled for 2,000 years. On the third day, they're spit out of the, the fish and right under the dry land. They're back in the land of Israel. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay? Next week is Jonah 3. It's verses 5 through 10. We're going to finish up the chapter. This coming sermon will be a wonderful feast. It's entitled, From the Greatest to the Least. That'll be our eighth Jonah sermon. And I'll tell you this, as I do each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Got a quick poem, very short one today, and we'll be done. This is entitled, The Repentance of Nineveh. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you, one that I am relaying. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent for it to be explored. And Jonah began to enter the city. On the first day's walk, the Lord's word he made known. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God has shown us in his precious word that being obstinate towards him can only harm us. Instead, we need to bow to our glorious Lord, giving honor and respect to Christ Jesus. Help us in this, Lord, this we implore. Our hearts are so easily turned away. Give us of your spirit to overflowing and even more so that we will bring honor to you always, yes, every day. And to you, we will give our highest of praise and to you, we shall look for eternal days. Hallelujah. And amen. amen. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you so very much for the chance to go through this marvelous book of Jonah. And certainly the one thing that I can uh, glean from the book, if nothing else, is that Israel needs their Savior and that their time of calling on him is soon, but much destruction is coming before that day happens. And so I would ask that your spirit would move in a great way upon the people of Israel, that many will be saved before that day comes. And we're looking forward to the day when we're all taken out of here. It'll be wonderful. But until then, help us to pursue you through this precious word, through fellowship and through praise and through just talking to you throughout the day. Help us to pray without ceasing, not just an hour in the morning, but pray without ceasing, petitioning you for everything that we need because you are there and you care for us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you be with each person here and each person that's listening in our extended uh, church, that you would be with them and help them through their times of trial and trouble. And uh, we've got people that are traveling right now. Please help them to get home safely or, or to arrive here safely. Some people are coming in. We pray for them. All of these things and so many more are on our hearts. So search us out, find them, Lord, and then respond to them according to your wisdom. We place all these things in your capable hands. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.